This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to the show once again. And as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Daniel Mallory Orberg. With me in the studio this week is Portia Alon, who lives in Oakland and works as a teen librarian and was once described by a friend as farm strong. Hi, Portia. Hi, Daniel. How are you doing? It's a little warm today, but I'm good. I'm definitely feeling a little farm soft myself. That is also a good thing. Like a fresh and sweaty cheese. (laughs) Um, that needs to be kept somewhere cool and dark. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm happy to be here. I'm so excited. Today I am once again on day one off of nicotine gum and part of my never-ending quest to quit forever and ever. So I think the energy that I will be bringing to our questions today is going to be sleepy and confused. But I would love to start with, it's finally my turn for a potential twin cest question. I feel like that was sort of a legendary question under the previous Dear Prudence. I've read it. I've read it too. (laughs) There was the two adult twins who were in love and wanted to know if they could just go for it. And um, this one is mine. Everyone gets a twin cest question and and my turn has finally come. So I think that means I should read it. I cannot let this cup pass from me. So here goes. The subject is teenage twins and TV. Dear Prudence, Recently, I accidentally opened a package meant for my 17-year-old daughter and found some merchandise centered around a certain incestuous couple from a wildly popular fantasy TV series that ended earlier this year. We talked, and she confessed to taking part in online, quote, shipping of this couple, writing fanfiction, talking to other fans on social media, etc. I wouldn't be too worried about this, except for one important fact— My daughter has a male twin with whom she is very close. They spend nearly all their time together when they're not at school or at their extracurricular activities. They cuddle in ways that until now I presume to be innocent and often take naps together. I know he was a fan of the show and of the two characters in question as well. Should I be worried that they are emulating these characters in more than just their twindom? And if so, how should I talk to them about it? My very first question is, what was the merchandise? I also wonder what was the merchandise. I also, I I never quite understand why somebody would make it this clear what show and what couple they're talking about, but also hold it back. Like, you're not going to get in trouble for product placement by writing. Like, you can just say it's it's Cersei and... and Jamie. Jamie from Game of Thrones. Yeah. Because what worries me is I'm broadly familiar with the show. I know that there are a couple of incestuous couples. So... By virtue of only implying that it's the twins, part of me is like, well, are you talking about um, Kit Harrington and the the eyebrows girl, Amelia Clark? Yeah. Because if you're talking about, you know, an aunt and a cousin or an aunt and a nephew, you're fine. Like you don't have to worry. She just likes Kit Harrington. That's why I need you to be specific. I'm pretty sure she's talking about Cersei and Jamie. I am also pretty sure that she is talking about Which Cersei is and Jamie. Such a deeply unhealthy couple. You know, I I don't I hope nobody was watching that show looking for relationship tips. But here it is. This is it. This is my moment of potential twin cest. What was your read on this? Was your read like this parent is reading too much into this? Was it like 
yep, your your antenna should all be up. I think my feeling is I have a lot more questions first because we're just seeing the kids through this particular lens. I wonder, like, do they have other friends or have they been in other relationships? Um, Because she mentions that they spend nearly all their time together when not at school or extracurricular activities. So for all we know, they're only together a few hours a week if they're busy. Um, My antennas went up, though. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I sure wish I knew what merchandise it was. Yeah, I I think that that probably makes sense. I don't think you need to act as if you have smoking gun evidence. But I do think it's also unusual, even for twins, to be, like, napping. I mean, again, like, I wish I knew what napping together meant for, for this. Like, do you mean they both fall asleep in the same room or on different sides of the couch? Or do you mean, like, full-on married couple 30 years in, spooning falling asleep at the same time, like gazing into one another's eyes until the first second of unconsciousness. Because Those are very different kinds of napping. Yeah. Um, yeah, but yeah, the question is, should I be worried? Sure, you should be a little worried. I don't know how to be only a little worried that your kids might be... Um, crossing boundaries? Crossing boundaries, I think, is probably a good way of putting it. But yeah, you should like ask a little bit more about this. Be a little bit more aware of the cuddling and the napping. If you want to start setting some different rules in the house, I think that's perfectly appropriate and well within your right. I also understand that your kids are 17 and they will probably be out of the house in a year. So there's not a ton you can do about how they conduct themselves out of the house. But you can certainly, you know, you've still got this year here. I think it would be worth opening a conversation, too, about what your daughter finds appealing about this couple on the show as a way of maybe uncovering a little bit about what she finds so gratifying about writing fan fiction about them or talking to other fans. What's the appeal? Yeah, I feel like part of what's hard here, too, that I don't want to come down too hard on is, like, kids and teens certainly can have a right to, like, an outrageous fantasy life that has nothing to do with their real life. So I also want to put in a plug for, like, not everyone's fantasy means that they are about to start hitting on their siblings. Um, so I, I I don't want to come down on like definitely something untoward is going on. Anybody who engages in like, you know, romanticizing unhealthy relationship dynamics on a TV show automatically wants to like recreate those dynamics in their own life. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think it will be good to have some uncomfortable conversations like with your kid about like what's going on here. Um, and, and that will maybe even mean asking questions that will make your kid feel freaked out. But like, if you don't ask and you just think like, oh, my kids cuddle a lot. Is that weird? Did I miss something that I could have learned more about? Like now's the time to have those uncomfortable conversations rather than later. Absolutely. And I wonder if it's possible to, to have those conversations I mean, I I don't know if this parent has had sort of the birds and the bees relationship conversation with their kids. Mm -hmm. And like that that conversation takes a different form when your kid is 13 than when they're 17. And so in the context of your kids getting ready to leave the house in a year, conversations around what do good relationships look like? What are your values around sex and around care for one another um, might be a way to enter into learning a little bit more about where your kids heads are. Yeah. Yeah. So I I would say to whatever degree you can be antennas up without kind of obsessing about whether or not your kids are crossing boundaries, 
I would strive to find that middle ground. If you start to find that really, really challenging, hopefully maybe seeing a therapist would be helpful for you. Um, but yeah, now is a good opportunity to ask a little question, um, set a few more boundaries about cuddling. It's totally fine to have limits on like sibling cuddling in the house. I, you know, I, I'm trying, I, I did not do a lot of cuddling with my siblings when I was 17. I mostly wanted to like get out of the house and not talk to them. And not that that's the ideal, <laughs> right? Like now ideally they'll just hate each other, but there's a, there's a happy medium. There is. I feel like all I don't have any siblings, but I feel like all of my friends who had siblings, their teenage years were rocky in -hmm. their relationships. And it wasn't until they got out of the house that they reconnected. Yeah. Good luck. This is a tricky one. I think all of the other ones are slightly easier. Um, I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. So this next letter is your turn to read. All right. Subject, family secret. Dear Prudence. My mother died when I was a baby, and my nana was the sole link to that side of the family. She raised me until I was eight, and my dad remarried. Right now, she has dementia and lives in a care facility. After cleaning out her house, I uncovered the worst kind of family secret. My mother wasn't my nana's daughter, but her granddaughter. A family friend raped her at the age of 12, and nana forced her to carry the baby to term. She didn't report the rape, just covered it up and passed the baby off as hers. It's God's will, quote, is the phrase she used over and over again in her letters. My mother grew up oblivious to the truth. Her mother committed suicide when she was 10. Nana wrote about her daughter being, quote, weak and, quote, against God. I was sick after reading these letters. The Nana I knew and loved was a lie. The woman who taught me to walk and talk and read forced a middle school-aged girl to give birth to her own, quote, sister. At 12, I still played with dolls, and my father wouldn't give me a hamster. I don't know what to do now. I haven't confided in anyone. I don't know how. My father has mentioned I haven't visited Nana in months. I went every two weeks before. I can't tell anyone. I am so furious and hurting. It scares me. This one is deeply painful, and I think mostly more than uh, I would have a lot of specific advice, I would just say it makes sense to me that you are furious and hurting. That is a logical and appropriate response. I am just so sorry. I feel like this is a lot to grieve and a lot to be angry for. Mm -hmm. And it's not, it's kind of a grief without answer. Yeah. Yeah, especially um, given that your your great-grandmother is not in a position, I think, to answer questions. No. Um, And it's not clear if she would have been in a position to answer questions even if she didn't have dementia. Right, right. But yeah, just knowing like to whatever extent um, she might have been available for certain kinds of conversations in the past, you know, the person who did those things is in many ways no longer present. Um, And I don't say that in the sense of, so therefore your job is just to separate that version of Nana from this version of Nana and go right back to visiting her and just put that to the side. I just mean... That's a real added layer of complexity um, that's really hard, and I wish that you didn't have to to grapple with that. But I would say mostly I think the thing for you to do here is to confide in someone. You say, I don't know how. You don't have to confide in someone really well. You can say – you can just blurt it out. You can say, I have no idea what to do about this. I feel like I'm losing my like composure and serenity every five seconds. I am totally baffled and furious and hurt. And then just say what you told us. That's it. I absolutely 
agree. The the comment that I circled was, I can't tell anyone. Um, and I think you can. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that you owe anyone keeping this secret. Um, I think that you deserve to be heard, whether by a friend or a counselor. And if that seems too scary at first, I would say by a journal, writing it out. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, just that sense of like, this is so big, I've got to keep it a secret. Please don't. I mean, it's been long enough that like anybody who could have potentially been deeply hurt or embarrassed by this is now either dead or or, are unable to absorb this information. You would not hurt your mother or her mother um, by sharing this because they're both gone. While I understand you don't relish the idea of sharing this with other people, all it could do is help, even if you wanted to tell your father. Um, if only so that he understood that you can't just have like a sort of how's grandma doing? When are you going to go see her next kind of conversation? Because you need to figure out right now to what extent you can do that. I I felt like in this letter, there was a little bit of a question you didn't want to ask, which was like, I kind of don't want to go see her, but I can't imagine letting myself not see her because, you know, she no longer remembers and she's old and she's dying. And I just want to say, you kind of have free reign here as far as I'm concerned. Um, And while I'm sure in many ways it would be hard and sad if she got fewer visits from you, if you can't go visit her right now without feeling like I'll fall apart or I'll say something I'll regret, don't visit her. Absolutely. I I think you have our full permission not to visit her if that's what feels right to you. Yeah. I I felt like maybe the reason you didn't ask that was because there was a sense of like, I I can't tell anyone. I'm going to have to get over this so I can go back and visit her. And I'll just say, again, I understand that in some ways she's not the same person, but you also just found this out. And to you, she is the same person. Um, And the fact that you found out when she was this ill is terrible timing, but that's not your fault. And that doesn't mean you have to just get over it, think of them as two separate people, and go right back to doing what she needs. You are allowed to have your own response to this. Yeah, I I think having some time to really grieve, grieving that there's no answers because of the dementia, and then grieving the irreconcilable fact of the woman who loved you so well and the woman who did this horrible, cruel thing. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of grief and anger to process. And you deserve time and space and support to do that without having to keep it together and be nice. Yeah. So I think tell someone today, I hope you can eventually tell your father, if only so you can let him know, like, this is what I am grappling with and I need your support. I also understand if the idea of sharing this with another family member feels too intimate right now and you need to stick to telling friends and a therapist. Um, But please do share with somebody right now because this is not going to be something that I think you can carry on your own. Absolutely not. It's just huge. It's just painful. It has everything to do with how you understand your own family of origin, how you understand your relationship to your other relatives, how you understand the woman who raised you for the first eight years of your life. Like, this is not going to be something that you can just, like, lock in a little box, push to the side, and then hopefully forget about in a couple of weeks. You deserve someone to talk to about this. I'm so sorry. Also, I just I feel like I've been getting a lot of letters from people who've been cleaning out people's houses after they have died and they've discovered really painful family secrets. Those people needed that book, The Gentle Art of Swedish Death Cleaning. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I understand we can't always anticipate when it's going to happen. But like if you know there's like a box in your house that would emotionally destroy someone if they had to go through it after your death, make plans for what's going to happen to that box after you die. Because that box will probably outlive you. Yes. Yeah. 
Okay, so we're going to move, like, I think slowly into not exactly easier questions, but at least less, like, existentially earth-shattering, I think. Questions with more hope in them, I feel like. Yes, yeah, with more that can be done Mm -hmm. um, because everyone's involved still. So the subject of our next letter is, how do I come out for my niece? Dear Prudence, my 11-year-old daughter has a cousin of the same age that she's very close with. We all live in the same city and spend a lot of time together. I love this little girl to pieces. She recently told my daughter and I that she is bisexual and gender fluid. I think she knew that she could talk to me because I've always been supportive of the LGBTQ community and have often said I don't care who my daughter loves as long as they treat her well. I told her that I love her and support her and that if she ever wants to talk about anything else with me, I'll listen. I also promised that I would never out her to anyone else in the family, but she wants just the opposite. She wants me to tell her dad for her. She says she's scared. Not that he'll yell or be cruel to her, but of having an embarrassing conversation. She's worried he'll treat her differently afterwards and doesn't know how to start the conversation. He's supportive of gay marriage, but I'm not so sure about trans people. I've heard him say that he's worried about letting trans people use public bathrooms. I told him I disagreed, and we eventually let that argument go. He's also a bit of a sexist. He adheres pretty strictly to traditional gender roles at home. The men work outside, the women do the cooking, cleaning, and child-rearing. I personally think he's a narcissist and has issues with women, but that's just my armchair diagnosis after knowing him for 20-plus years. I don't really know how he'll react. I'm sure he won't physically hurt his daughter or call her names or yell or throw her out of the house. She's not in that sort of danger at all. But that doesn't mean he'll react positively or be a loving and supportive person. My gut says he'll be dismissive and tell her she's just young and doesn't really know. So, what say you? Should I tell him? And if so, how do I start that conversation? I'm, like, so glad that your nibbling has you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also just I ache so much for this 11-year-old girl who wants her dad to know her um, but is scared. Yeah. And I relate to that because I think that fear is real and I think it's probably true. Like, one of the harder things about coming out at various points in my life was I, I knew I don't think that I'm likely going to get thrown out of the house, but I know things are going to be different and uncomfortable and painful. And I was right. Um, they were. I think usually when someone has that sense about a family member, it's rare that they're surprised. Usually they know one of the things I'm going to lose is an easy sort of closeness and an ease of manner and a comfort um, that will be hard to get back. Um, and I understand you know, not wanting to give that up, even if you know, like, that's contingent upon them seeing me as something that I'm not. But, like, the idea of being 11 and knowing, like, if I tell my parent this, they're going to suddenly, you know, not know how to address me or how close to sit to me or some of the, like, easy physical interactions that we once shared will now be awkward and strained. And I will know acutely when that's happening. That's hard. Or even more actively, this idea that he might be dismissive and tell her that she doesn't know. Right, right. And then it would just feel like I shouldn't even have said anything. Like, I could have skipped all this. But then, clearly, this 11-year-old is ready not to be in the closet. hmm Which is such a fair and strong yeah. feeling. Yeah. And I also just think that I'm so impressed that at 11... She's, like, talking to other relatives and and sharing this with other members of her family. Like, that's remarkable. I I think that you've been entrusted with something really, really fragile and lovely. And I totally understand your sense of, like, 
I feel like I know my brother pretty well and he's not great and I'm not sure how to um, do what I've been entrusted to do. So tell me what you think about this. My first thought was like before having a conversation with the brother, maybe consider hitting up like a PFLAG meeting together. Did you write that down in your I notes? I wrote down PFLAG on here. <laughs> I, I know kind of PFLAG can vary from like region to region, how many people attend or how many resources you can get tapped into. Often it's just a sort of informal support group. So sometimes you get family members who are like struggling with being supportive. So I don't want to promise you'll walk into PFLAG and they're going to hand you everything you need. But I do think considering finding your local LGBT center and finding either a PFLAG meeting or a support group of, of any kind for like queer youth would be hugely helpful. Yeah, I wrote down PFLAG. Their website is actually pretty great in terms of resources it offers as well. Great. Um, even like scripts for like talking with family members. I am from the Bay Area. And when I was a little baby gay, I went to something called Outlet. Um, and I don't know if it exists across the country the Pacific Center in Berkeley is something very similar. And so I think that there are probably places like it. But wondering if there are ways for you to help connect your niece to other queer LGBTQ people mm-hmm. and affirming adults um, in some sort of after school program. Yeah. Yeah, that that sounds great. I'm just looking that up right now. And yeah, it looks like it's a, just a program for adolescent counseling services. And that sounds fabulous. I think that that will be really, really important. And then I think to also check back in with your niece and just say, I'm happy to have that conversation with your dad on your behalf. And just ask a little bit more about like, what would you want me to communicate to him? Is there anything you don't want me to share with him? Do you have a sense of a timetable that feels important to you? Uh, just make sure that you kind of get all the important details from her about what you, she does and doesn't want you to say on her behalf so that you can kind of say, you know, before you do it, like, OK, let me just like recap, like read you back the minutes from our, yeah. our meeting that we had together, because um, this is some serious like varsity level anting. Um, and and I think it will feel good for you to feel like, OK, I went in with a really clear picture of what she wants. And I think including in that really clear picture, what are some like? actionable steps that dad can take to show that he's like, you know, sort of like, what are the asks? Is Mm -hmm. it that he uses certain pronouns? Is that he doesn't ask, do you have a crush on a boy? He says, do you have a crush on someone? Mm -hmm. So that dad maybe feels also like he has concrete steps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Is it like, do you just want your dad to say like, hey, your aunt told me, thanks for telling me, and then not bring it up with you again? Like, I really like that idea of, like, is there anything that you want to ask of your dad? Um, Because that might be helpful. And then I think to approach, you know, it it will be challenging, I think, given your own uh, understandable uh, frustrations with your brother to approach this conversation where you uh, kind of lead with the opportunity for him to show up and do his best but I think to to whatever you need to do to prepare so that you can go in assuming and asking the best of him, that will help. Because um, I think if you go in with some contempt or some like get with the program, you idiot, um, anything that's designed to make him feel more defensive probably will. And that doesn't mean that if he gets defensive, that's your fault. I just think that's going to be a good way to start things off. Um, yeah, believing that he wants to be the best dad he can be. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, tell him whatever it is that, she wants you to communicate to him if there's you know if you want to talk about beforehand with her like what's a like quick kind of rundown of what these things mean to you that I can share with him and then 
you know, I would I would probably limit any editorializing to just she wanted me to tell you because she was really scared. And I just want you to know, like, I, I, I love that kid. I think she's doing amazing stuff. And this is a real opportunity for you to let her know that you love her no matter what. Um, and I hope that you'll do that. Yeah, I think maybe also when you ask her sort of what she wants out of it, maybe also ask her what questions she would feel comfortable answering mm-hmm. from her dad. Mm-hmm. And that you could share with him sort of, if you have a lot of questions about X, you should ask her. If you have a lot of questions about Y, here are some internet resources or books you can look at. Yeah. Yeah, and, and then with all that said, if his response is just kind of mixed, don't be too surprised. Um, and, and that's just going to be another opportunity for you to be supportive from an appropriate distance. And it's so good that she already knows that she can turn to you about a number of different things. And either her dad will take this as an opportunity to let go of some of his ideas about what his kids should and shouldn't be like. Um, or, it, you know, it will be the start of some distance um, and he will not get to know her as well as a result of, you know, what happens in this conversation. Hopefully you guys can continue to spend a lot of time together, continue to affirm one another's identities. Yeah, I'm just really glad she has you and her daughter, or your daughter rather. Um, I think that that's going to go a long way. And again, if you want to just like volunteer to like, if if she wants to go back to that like center or to other support groups or to Pride or whatever, um, to be available for that. So she always knows like, I can go to my cool aunt. Everybody wants a cool aunt. Kids need cool aunts. They really, really do. All right. Moving on. I was trying to think of if I could make a cover-up joke about, like, your parents not coming to your wedding because I'm trying to transition from one letter to the other. It doesn't work. Really, really wish I had a cigarette right now. <laughs> it's really hard. <laughs> You've got this. Thank you. It's good for your body not to. I will have nine more cups of tea and then cry later. It's Crying is also allowed. It's it's going to happen. It's on the agenda. For later today, don't you worry. I'm I'm steamrolling towards two years cigarette free, um, and so I'm sending you a lot of my calming vibes. Those um, first few months were rough. I am really, really, really impressed with you. I ate a lot of pastries. Understandably. All right. So <laughs> the subject of this next letter is parental no show at our gay wedding. Dear Prudence, my parents are deeply religious and have been involved in my and my boyfriend's lives since we started dating over four years ago. They love my boyfriend, but because of their perspective on their faith, they don't think it's right for us to be married as two gay men. We recently got married, and they opted not to show up, citing their religious concerns. They said in a letter that they loved us and hoped that we could find faith in Jesus. Both of us are disappointed and not sure if we should distance ourselves for a bit to let them know how we feel. I'm planning on writing them a letter. This is how our family seems to communicate when we actually want to get a point across, to explain why we are disappointed, and to list the reasons why we got married, including making sure that medical and legal rights could be maintained, and how we can't really trust them to honor our wishes. Both of them are now in their early 70s, and I'm concerned with losing time with them, considering how short and unexpected life can be. Is there a better or more responsible way to go about this? We both love my parents, but are conflicted about a way forward. I'm so sorry they didn't come to your wedding. This one felt slightly odd to me. I think just because it's hard to think like for four years, they've been pretty consistently there. They've seen your relationship. They've presumably seen the ways in which you love for and care for each other. And then when it came time to just like sort of, you know, legally codify the rights and and responsibilities you two have bound up in one another, at that point, they decided like, 
of course, we still disapprove. Um, and that's just such a disappointing choice, I think. It is. That sort of almost imaginary line of like this relationship becomes unacceptable when you put your toe in what is a religious ceremony. Right. Right. Like, oh, right. We forgot that we disapproved. Um, but we just wanted to make sure that you knew. It's actually every time we like meet you for dinner, it's a moral compromise on our parts. Yeah. I have to say, I think I'm not sure that a letter will change anything. Do you think that it would be better to have a conversation or do you think just kind of radio silence? Like, what do you think would be your choice here? I think my question is around, like, what does the letter writer and his husband need in order to have a relationship with the parents? Hmm. Um, I'm not I'm not sure why the parents who've been involved in their lives for four years wouldn't already know the medical and legal reasons why they're getting married. Right. And so, you know, does the letter writer need an apology? Do they need the parents to articulate acceptance? Do they need a don't ask, don't tell policy? Um, sort of what is, what do they need in order to maintain a relationship with their parents who they're now worried about are aging and, and want to have in their lives. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that will be helpful to think through what you want and what you need here. You know, I, I know that you say that you're concerned about losing time with them, that life is short and unexpected, and uh, full of unexpected events. And I feel like you're already putting a lot of pressure on yourself of like, it is my job to make peace with my parents' homophobia because someday they'll die. And I, I also, you know, I get if you want to maximize time and minimize conflict, those are your values here. I get it. Um, they're certainly not like calling you up in the middle of the night and telling you that you're going to hell. If you decide that you want to make your peace with this level of homophobia, I could understand that. But I also worry that you're kind of forcing yourself to be okay with something in a rush that you don't necessarily have to be. It's actually really okay to say, this is bullshit. You've seen us together for four years. You know how much we care about each other. Suddenly, the idea that we have, you know, gotten married so that if one of us goes to the hospital, the other one can go into their room. That bothers you? That that you think Jesus is mad about that? Um, if you want to name that as, like, cruelty and hypocrisy, I think you can and you should. And if that hurts your parents' feelings, if that causes a fight, if that means you all need to take a little while to cool off before you talk again, I think that that would actually be important and healthy conflict. But you don't have to. Yeah, yeah. I think that having it a letter that's like, this is naming it as homophobia. Yeah. I don't think that, letter writer, you need to justify your marriage to your parents. Yeah. That's what I read on the first time about the letter. And I was like, you don't you don't need to justify this. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point, too. Like, to not say, like, I'm going to, you know, you've seen us for years. I'm not going to go into, like, some sort of long list of explanations of why I think I should be allowed to marry my partner. Um it's kind of demeaning, but I am going to tell you that this was homophobic and it hurt me deeply and it was a choice that you made to not, you know, invest in and support our life together. And if we need to scale back accordingly, we may do that. And I hope that you find Jesus a great comfort in those times. Um, okay, that last bit is maybe needlessly bitchy. <laughs> maybe you can just say that to a friend or a therapist beforehand. You can put it in a letter. I, I do kind of think it might be better to say it in person to kind of break that, like, we silently don't show up to weddings and then send, like, little stealth needles via the post to one another. I think it might actually 
be useful to name something in person. But if you needed to send it in a letter, you know, I could understand. Or frankly, even if you wanted to read something off of a letter. Yeah, I think that writing it down in advance might be good yeah. for sorting out your feelings. I would also point you to, to there's a, a website called Gay Church that has a, a piece on it called Letter to Louise, which is, um, I don't know if you've read it, Danny. It's um, a church leader who really struggled with, like, understanding uh, queerness and then really writes about why homophobia rooted in the Bible is wrong. Mm. Um and so I don't know if that would be something that you could send to your parents and say, being Christian doesn't mean rejecting gay people. Mm-hmm. It's hard. I often go back and forth on that kind of thing. Like, on the one hand, I do think that there are some people who genuinely want to find a way to reconcile their particular religious interpretation um, and their desire not to be homophobic. But I also think other times it can be kind of a trap to get into this, like, nickel and diming, like, here's why I'm a person. Or, like, here's why it's not evil to be queer. Um, And I think that it's good if you decide to engage in that kind of discourse to have an exit strategy. Because at some point, if someone is just not willing to listen to why you're a person or um, why your relationships have meaning and dignity and value, then you could run yourself ragged um, trying to say, like, and again, if we look at the original Aramaic, I'm a person. Um, Yeah. That can feel really demeaning. So, yeah, I go back and forth on that. Not that I think it's a total waste of time. Just you can easily get sucked into like, oh, God, the last 15 years of my life have been spent arguing about my humanity with these people. Yeah. And and I don't know if the letter writer's parents are homophobic because they believe that's the correct interpretation of their faith or if they are homophobic and that is a convenient reason mm-hmm. for homophobia. And that is hard because I, I genuinely do think there are people – in both camps and you don't always know which one is which some people are like boy i'd sure like to to be able to have a reason to put it down and there are other people who are like i will grab at any reason why i can't put this homophobia down and it doesn't matter i'm keeping it yeah (laughs) keeping the homophobia so um yeah but good luck i think it is totally right and understandable to let them know how this made you feel And don't let the fact that they're in their early 70s make you feel like, well, it's just my job to swallow stuff. Absolutely not. And to dish out whatever they want. And congratulations on your marriage. Yeah, that's wonderful. And I'm so, so glad that um, now your parents don't have any sort of like first kin rights. First kin? That's not an expression. The hospital rules. The hospital rules. Thank you. I will eventually have my brain back. Let's... And on a challenging but hopeful note about, you know, hope for the future. What are the children doing? How do we collectively bind up one another's wounds? The subject is 13-year-old's first gay crush. Dear Prudence, my 13-year-old daughter just told me that she has a crush on a girl, Millie. While this is obviously big news, it's not a big deal in our family, which has several other LGBTQ members. My worry is that my daughter wants to save the world, and she told me that her crush has some concerning problems. Millie's coming out to her family has resulted in physical and emotional abuse. She has had bouts of self-harm and probably an eating disorder. I don't want my daughter to think that my concerns about this potential relationship have anything to do with being gay, as we live in the Big South. I'm sorry. The Big South? (laughs) My brain is not here. All right. Um, There's the Big South and the Small South. We live in the Deep South, so she's worried about acceptance. But I have some real concerns. How do I support her? 
And how do I help her support Millie without taking too much responsibility on for Millie's mental health issues? My first question here is, what is the nature of this physical abuse? And is there someone at the school who is a mandated reporter that you can report this to? Yeah, I wrote CPS question mark at the top of my paper. Um, I used to work at a high school and we had a what was called a cost referral. It was like the coordination of services team. Uh, And anyone could fill out a cost referral for a student, a parent, another student, a teacher. So I would find out if your school has something similar. Um, And what that does in many schools is it sends that report to a team of professionals at the school Mm -hmm. who decide, is this a counseling need? Is this a CPS need? Is this a nursing need? An academic support need? Um, Because those are going to be the group of adults who will have the tools to meet Millie where she is. Yeah. Yeah. If she's 13 years old and she's being physically and emotionally abused for coming out, um, that's a kid who needs a lot of help. She does not have a lot of resources. It's not like she can, you know, drive away and, like, crash at a friend's house. It's not like she can go get a job and save up money. Like, she is a young teenager. And um, physical abuse for queer kids is is really serious. So I, I think before you go to your kid and say, like, we can't save everybody, you actually need to step in and intervene as a as a as an adult here, I think. Um so yeah, I would say talk to the school guidance counselor. I I th- I think the stuff about filing different reports is is excellent, but but you need to make sure that this kid is not um that her abuse is not going totally ignored. Yeah, because it's clearly, it's manifesting in some pretty serious self-harm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a serious red flag to me. This isn't just like, oh, you know, she receives regular, not reparative therapy. Her parents are doing their best with her. She's dealing with these ongoing issues, but all the adults in her life are doing right by her. This is like, this kid is in crisis right now. Um, And I think this kind of self-harm could seriously point towards like this is a significant cry for help this means that she's slipping through the cracks something more serious could happen at any point and um, somebody who's an adult and who's responsible needs to intervene so that's your first priority beyond that um, you know talking to your kid about ways in which you can try to help and support somebody in crisis ways in which it's also okay to say you know I cannot save this person all by myself Um, How do I find ways to also like look after myself and make sure that I don't feel like I'm the only person standing in between this person and disaster? That's really important stuff that, you know, I think any kid kind of needs to learn, especially if your kid is of the type that's like when someone's going through a crisis, their antenna kind of perk up of like, how can I help? Because it's a really good instinct. And it can also sometimes result in your kid running themselves ragged, trying to fix everybody. And so that's a really good opportunity to like both affirm that as a lovely quality in her and also to talk about what are some reasonable limits. I agree. I think it's a great time for, I mean, I think 13 is a great time for the sex ed conversation about what does a healthy relationship look like, whether that's a friendship or a romantic relationship, what are boundaries? Um, And I wrote down two book recommendations. Um, They're middle grade novels. Both are about protagonists who have someone in their life with depression. Mm -hmm. Um, And so 11, 12, 13-year-olds wrestling with how do I love and support this person I care about who is also dealing with serious mental illness. Um, One is called Nest by Esther Ehrlich, and the other is The Science of Breakable Things by Tay Keller. Those are great names. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I love that idea. And then I think beyond that, your kid is also 13. So it's not like she can go like drive off and get a motel room with Millie. So I think having these conversations will be great. But beyond that, I don't think you need to do a lot right now, aside from the stuff about reporting this, um, just because any dates that they would potentially go on would probably be you'd have to drive them somewhere, <laughs> you know, like yeah. you would be involved. Um, so I, it does not sound like you, you don't say like my daughter's losing sleep or, you know, Millie's run away and is trying to spend the night here or, or you know, I, I've like found them like running off to the big city together. So I think mostly the things that you should be concerning yourself with are making reports and then also talking to your daughter a lot about how can we be helpful to Millie? How can we also take care of ourselves, take a little space, make sure that, um, you don't feel like it's your job. You know, like we have responsibilities as concerned outsiders in this situation, but it is not your sole job to fix Millie with your love and to make her life perfect. Here's what we can do. Here's what we can't. Yeah. I think it would also be worth a conversation about Millie's self-harm and eating disorder. Yeah. Yeah. Tell your kid, that. like, do you have any questions about that? Um is, is there something that we could read together to learn more about, like, what that's like or why people do that to kind of demystify some of it? Um, did you have any other thoughts about what how, how that conversation would go? Or I just remember those kinds of things I felt like were kind of a wildfire mm-hmm. in eighth and ninth grade, which is around the age that the letter writer's daughter is. And so just having a conversation of, yeah, demystifying, talking about, like, what that represents and What are some healthier coping mechanisms for dealing with the kind of pain? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think all that's going to be really, really useful. Because I also just think the thing that you sort of want to protect your kid from, which is like a lifetime of like having a big old heart (laughs) and um, often responding to um, vulnerability with like big hard eyes, that's probably going to be a part of your kid's character for a big chunk of her life. Um, So I think you can encourage her to develop tools to kind of make sure that she also looks after herself. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's it's, I think it's kind of hard, like when you start to identify like, oh, I think this is going to be the thing that sometimes makes life hard for you. You can't wish that away. You can't discipline it away. Your kid will probably always have a certain big response to like, oh, no, you're not doing well. Let me help. Um, so rather than like, how do I make sure my kid never goes down that path or never falls for, you know, troubled, brooding, sensitive types who are in a, in a trouble that might just be the type of person they're often drawn to. So rather than worrying about like, how do I redirect to like, look at that person who's just totally got their stuff together and is treated really well. Why don't you fall in love with them instead? Like that won't get you really many places, but I think what you can do is talk about like, you know. What do you feel drawn to here? What do you feel like are the limits of what you can and can't do? How can I as your parent be helpful? What are practical, useful reminders for you about like maintaining your other interests, getting enough sleep, talking to your other friends, et cetera, et cetera, um, without like signaling, I'm freaked out about this. I want you to get over this. I want you to like somebody whose life is easy and simple. That will make your kid feel like, aha, time yeah. to dive straight into Romeo and Juliet style stuff. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, you can't stop your kid from wanting what they want. Yeah. But you can maybe give them some tools to want it in a healthy way. Yeah. 
I think that that's a really good point. And, you know, good luck. I hope that filing this report helps Millie. Um, I hope that her, somebody is prioritizing her safety. I hope she's able to go somewhere where she's not harmed for being gay. Um, I hope that this produces good, positive, safe results for her. I agree. And congratulations on having a daughter that feels comfortable coming out to you. Yeah. Yeah. That's really like that part really warms my heart, even though the problems of like the really young queer kids are really stressful and difficult and painful. I also just feel amazed that like at 11 and 12 and 13, they're already out to some family members and receiving some forms of support that just like, whew, that's hard to imagine. Yeah. The world has changed. Yeah. I'm really glad about that. Portia, thank you for coming in today and helping me through this breakdown. I am. It's been a pleasure to be here and solve all the world's problems. Yeah, you you did a lot of heavy lifting today, and I'm profoundly grateful for it. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com/slash/dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR, that's 3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute, tops. Thanks for listening. Here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. One of the things that I felt here is that the burden of, like, because I'm a feminist, I I now have to feel proud of every single part of my body all the time or else I'm failing, not just at having, like, an ideal body, but also at being a feminist. That's just too much pressure to put on yourself. It's like double shame. I would like to give you permission to have, like, begrudging acceptance about some of your body parts. Or to say sometimes, like, I feel bad about this one, and when that moment comes up, when that feeling comes up, I will pay attention, I will treat myself kindly, but I will not try to, like, force my mind to produce relentless positivity. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash prudipod.